I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me, Joe. You're welcome. You are so happy New Year. Yeah, happy, happy 2019. Year. Isn't that crazy? 2019. It 2019 seems... is the year, I believe, that Blade Runner takes place, right? I think that's right. Yeah. Actually, that is that is correct. Now, there have been multiple Blade Runners now, right? Is, the, well, come on. One? There's one Blade Runner. <laughs> <laughs> did you watch? Did you see the other Blade Runner? I, didn't I did see not. It. I intended to. I, I hear and it's I, good. I actually did hear it was pretty good. I, no. I, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it had redeeming value. I've heard that it was beautifully shot. That it's like very uh, fun to look at. Whatever. But like, I just. I don't know. I. I got. I got a little like exhausted by the number of things that you thought were gone that had come back. <laughs> and Blade. For some reason, Blade Runner was the one that like. That like did did me in. That's it. That was couldn't... one you were like, that's enough. That's yeah. That's and and I, 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 I weirdly being a sci-fi nut and uh and like a uh, it being a perfect age, I Blade Runner was never like my big movie. Like I it was never like a huh. yeah. Huh. Like I I I think I'm not enough of a cineast to um to like well, what... have really appreciated it because I know the people who are like super filmic people are really into the way that movie looks and the way it was made and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not, I'm not like a sophisticated enough viewer to have had that be meaningful to me. But I also, I also saw it late. I didn't see it when I was a kid. I saw it like when I was like 24 or something and I had already seen like the matrix and I was like, all right, Blade Runner's fine. But <laughs> so I thought, it's like, it's like anything else. If you see it, when it's been ripped off a hundred million times, right, it's never right. going to be as good as it would have been if you had just it's, seen it. You know that is true. That is true. So, what what would you call though from your sort of I wouldn't even call it childhood, but from sort of your teenage years to to that, what would be the movie you would say like like if if Blade Runner was not your movie, well, is the Matrix your movie of that time? Is that is that well, that's a different time. I mean, from my childhood, is. from like yeah. my childhood in the eighties. It was Star Wars, and then a little bit later, it was like Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller. Okay, so those yeah, movies, so yeah. Those movies. But in yeah. this, in the, in the whole science fiction genre, it would definitely be Star. Uh, I was Star, Star Wars. Wars. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, unless you count like Back to the Future as science fiction, because uh, like Back to the Future was the first movie I saw where I was like, oh, this was made for me. Like that's which is I think what a big part of identifying with a movie i think is when you have that weird feeling of like oh someone looked into my brain and made this just for me that was to me that was back to the future i just saw i love back to the future i love it i just saw this comedy bit and i, I don't remember who did it and i don't I, I don't even want to bring it up without crediting the person who did it but it was this whole bit about how absurd it must have been to pitch back to the future yeah to somebody uh, have you ever seen that bit? Yeah, I want to say it's Patton Oswalt, but I could be wrong. It seems like the kind of thing he would do. But yeah, yeah it's it was, like you're gonna you're gonna. It's a movie about a guy who goes back in time and dates his mom. I mean, it's really mom. creepy. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, "That's weird." It's like, what? what so, so what are you calling it? Oh, we're gonna call it Back to the Future. But isn't he going back to the past? I don't understand. <laughs> like, it's a great. Well, you know, bit. they I, I they did a whole. Fun. I don't know if you watched the show Glow, um, but they did a whole storyline in the first season of Glow that was really funny where Mark <laughs> Marin plays this sort of like tortured, misunderstood kind of like slasher movie kind of like weirdo. And 
who has this dream of like making these kind of insane, really like dirty, like art film kind of new Like, I don't know what even what you would call it. And he's been working on his masterpiece for a year. This is a spoiler. I'm sorry if you haven't seen the show. Stop listening. Um, but uh, he's been working on like his this screenplay for like a, uh, for like a long time, and and it's gonna be like really like gritty and like tell the tell this like really oh, like disturbing story. And the story ends up being about a guy who goes back in time and ends up accidentally having sex with his own mother. <laughs> and then all the people on the show are like, they, the movie just came out. It's called Back to the Future. And he's like, what? No, th- this is what happens in my movie. And they're like, yeah. And he's like, well, but th- like this was like a major release. And they're like, yeah, it was like, you know, it was a kid. Michael J. Fox is in it. Like, it's like a big, it's a famous movie. And he's just like ruined because he, he feels like someone stole his really cool, awesome, gritty, dark idea and turned it into like a mainstream success. Oh, it's wow. very funny. I love it. I love the the other the other element of that thing is how did how did uh, Michael J. Fox become friends with Doc? Like, how did that happen? Like, what was yeah. the, what possible circumstances could have come up with those two guys would become friends? Very odd. Very I think odd. I, that see that doesn't that stuff doesn't bother me because there are like I had a physics teacher in high school who was like a true weirdo. And I and like we me and my <laughs> friends like hung out with him all the time because it was fun. But I I feel like there's one gigantic flaw in an otherwise perfect screenplay. Right. There's one gigantic flaw that they could have solved really easily, which is the entire movie depends on them knowing the exact moment that a lightning bolt strikes a clock tower. Right. The clock tower has no second hand. Like it just <laughs> it's it's like 10:03 p.m. or whatever, but it could have been anywhere in that minute and the clock would have frozen. That's they right. just needed they needed to add a second hand. And there's if they added I know oh, that yeah. clock towers generally don't have second hands, but Without a second hand, you don't know when the lightning is going to strike. And as a result, you don't know how fast you should go in the DeLorean with the thing sticking up out of the back into the flux capacitor. Like, I just I can't believe they the attention to detail in that movie is wonderful. It's part of the reason everybody loves it so much, because everything kind of links up and connects. And it's a as a screenplay, it's like you teach that in screenwriting classes right? as like a masterwork of of um, of screenplay writing. And yet there's this one dumb flaw that like. <laughs> They just left on the floor somewhere. It just was so they, weird to me. But they did try to talk around that, right? Because they said right at the stroke of midnight, right? Like yeah, but how do you know that? Like, I, I no one was there. The but only here's... people who were there were Doc and and whatever Marty. And so no one. There weren't. It wasn't like there were a thousand witnesses standing around watching it happen. So I just it's it's the simplest fix in the world. They just needed a second hand on the stupid clock. Why yeah, didn't they just no. have a second hand? But even then, I mean. Look, just having to hit that wire at precisely that second. Come on, I mean, like the whole thing is like that's what you. Wait, that would be too far. You're not going to be able to time. But that's what that's what happens now. That what happens in the current in the actual movie is it happens at the exact moment when the lightning strikes. It's just that there's no way to know that that's the moment they should be there. I'm just saying the timing of it. I mean, you know, you 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 watch you watch NFL teams trying to time like just a regular play. The timing of starting the DeLorean in time to go exactly 88 miles an hour precisely the second it hits that wire, which That's is what they have to do second. now. What are you objecting to? I don't understand this. That's no, what they have to do to in the I'm, actual movie. No, no, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is Oh, you're that, you're saying that's the part you just don't buy. No, I'm not. I don't buy. I mean, it's it's it, to me. My question is, if you're already going to uh, defy expectations and defy belief and 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 all those sorts of things, 
then I think that for me, it's enough to save the stroke of midnight because the idea that they could actually time that up exactly the way they do anyway is ludicrous. Even with a second hand, it would be kind of ludicrous. This is a crazy stance on your part. This is an insane stance because they, one way or another, they have to do this insanely improbable thing, which is at exactly the right moment, get exactly to this place. So what difference is if you add the second hand and you know the actual second, at least they know what their target is. Right now, they don't know where their target is. There's no reason for them to start to draw the line on the road where Marty starts his journey from because there's no there's no way they could calculate the actual length of time it will take from them to get from point A to point B because they don't know what time they're supposed to be there. If you add the second hand, at least they know what time they're supposed to be there. And by the way, I'll say this. There's another giant. There's one other giant flaw in that movie and that Uh-oh. screenplay, which is when he's st- when he's back at that line and he's like he's angry at Doc Brown for not opening the letter that he wrote to him right. where he said the Libyans are going to kill you, blah, blah, blah. He gets he's like, wait a second. I'm in a time machine. I got all the time I want. And then that's followed by. 10 minutes ought to do it (laughs) so he goes back he goes back 10 he gives himself a with infinite time at his disposal he goes decides to go back 10 minutes before the the warning instead of let's say a week or a month or 10 years or whatever he's like wait i got all the time in the want Uh, 10 minutes ought to do it (laughs) it's really crazy and it's one of those things where like they got to that point in the screenplay and they're like, oh, no, they're, we're right. He has all the time he wants. What do we do here? And then they just punted and we're like, no one will care. We'll just it'll it'll be fine. Well, if we're going to deal with that, I mean, we're going to deal with those things. because I've, I've, I've spent way too much time thinking about this as well. He doesn't leave right when the alarm goes off either. Right. Because the car won't start. So he's got like the, he bangs his head on the thing and like, right. like, like so he doesn't so they didn't even time it right because right. he doesn't actually take off when the alarm goes off. So really all of it is is wonderfully. I guess what we're saying is there are some logic flaws in the time travel <laughs> comedy from the 80s. <laughs> and we're going to take 10 minutes to tell you all about them. That's all right. right. The beginning of, the, of this sports <laughs> podcast will be 10 minutes of rehashing these old arguments that everybody already knows about. <laughs> all right. We have a wonderful guest with us this week. But before we get to uh, to our guest, uh, we should uh, make this uh, sort of final proclamation here. So as uh, as I think all of our listeners know, we had a fun T-shirt uh, contest where Mike and I uh, each had our own T-shirt for sale uh, with money going to charity. My T-shirt, of course, said uh, fruit pie is delicious. Mike's T-shirt said uh, hot fruit is disgusting uh, with um, with uh, all of the proceeds going to charity. So want to make the final uh, announcement of how much money we raised, which is which is nice. Uh, we actually ended up raising three thousand dollars for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, my charity. And. I'll let you announce yours. Well, you're you're adding in our individual penalty donations, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Total yeah. amount. We're so it was three thousand for Crohn's and colitis, and two thousand for the International Rescue Committee. Isn't that what? Two thousand dollars for the. That's right. Yeah. So total five grand. We raised five grand for this for this absurdity. That's right. Uh, by selling by um, by expressing differing opinions on the relative merits of heated fruit. We <laughs> <laughs> We raised $5,000 for two worthy charities. Two wonderful worthy charities. So very cool. Very cool. And and thank you all for 
for taking part and uh and, and thank you please. especially to people who took selfies in the shirts and tweeted them Love to it. us that was yes. delightful yes we've we've uh i've tried to retweet every selfie i've seen if you have any others and you would like to i will always retweet them so will mike uh we just had a really cool one that you have to say is the guy who was uh who was wearing his t-shirt when he was going through crohn's uh and colitis he was going through his treatment and yeah. uh, he wore that it was very very cool um uh megan amram actually uh, tweeted a little selfie we should mention that shouldn't we we should definitely sure. mention that by megan, the way megan amram which we should have as a guest on this we are, podcast we, we are we are planning on that that's right plan we're planning on that yes and she she um she has worked with me on parks and recreation and now the good place for many years and is really deep into the argument about hot fruit like she's very very <laughs> familiar with the argument she's heard me discuss it she knows where i stand um and she tweeted a picture of herself wearing was it your i can't remember now whether it was your shirt or mine no it was mine it was okay. my shirt it was it yeah. was fruit pie is delicious because that's where she stands on that this shows you and, how much uh, respect she has for me her co-worker and friend <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very respectful to to speak the truth. That's really what it comes down to. So, sure. um, so anyway, very cool. Thank you all for for being a part of that, and uh, uh, we'll try to do something like this again. We'll we'll figure it out. But uh, really, if you do have any, if you want to wear your shirt and you want to get retweeted by us for some reason, I don't know why you'd want that. But if you do, uh, please do post your uh, selfies, and we're we're happy to do that. All right, let's get to this week, which is very very cool. We have an amazing guest. A, 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 close friend of, of both of ours. Uh, we have with us Tommy Tomlinson. Uh, Tommy, how are you? I'm doing great. And let me just say, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed Sci-Fi Movie Minute. And I think <laughs> that now should be another segment because there aren't enough segments. Yeah, we need more segments. You need another yeah, segment. We, that's right. And, and yeah. so I think, uh, I think taking apart a, a sci-fi movie and exposing the flawed logic so that it ruins it for everyone listening <laughs> is a you know is a, a deep value that you should you should keep going with that. I think you're right. I think that it's a, yet another public service that we are providing for the nation is exposing much discussed already flaws in thirty plus year old science fiction 30 movies. Plus year old. I, I agree. We did that for sports movies, so now it's time to move on to. Uh, and I don't even know if it would be sci-fi. We could do it with sci-fi, but it almost like we could do it with like. 1980s already picked over movies right that everybody's already had these conversations like a thousand times we just have them again for everybody don't you think or, or you could be you could go back and like ruin memento for all of us you know, <laughs> sure. to, say, to say look if you lay it out front to back this could never have happened right and and it's just silly to think that you know he's <laughs> the whole tattoo thing wait is, didn't we discuss um uh, first of all the segment should very obviously be called um joe and mike ruin movies <laughs> but didn't joe do we discuss i can't remember whether we just talked about this on this podcast or whether i talked about it in some other location recently but the thing about um about indiana jones the first indiana jones movie have we talked about this do you remember does this ring a bell i don't i don't it does there's, ring a bell. there's like a famous thing about the uh, raiders of the lost ark which is obviously a, a all-time classic one of my would again one of my favorite movies one, one of, of my like movies. top 10 all time yes, absolutely um but there's this thing that was pointed out to me many years ago which i talk about a lot because i think it's fascinating which is that in that movie uh if you remove indiana jones from the movie nothing changes do you know this thing <laughs> think, no. so think about this so indiana jones gets word that the nazis are chasing the ark and they're digging 
and trying to find it. They're in the wrong place. He goes, finds the right place, excavates the Ark. They catch him and take the Ark. Mm-hmm. Then they go to this location and he's tied up to a pole and he says, don't look. And then they, the Nazis open the Ark and they all die. Right. So remove Indiana Jones from the story. What happens? <laughs> Either the Nazis don't find the Ark ever and everything's fine or worse. They find the Ark, but instead of opening it in a weird cave, they take it back to Hitler and they open it in front of Hitler and Hitler dies and the war ends way earlier. So actually, Indiana Jones made everything worse. He kind of extended the war. Yes, that is that is the 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 hypothesis here is that by intervening, Indiana Jones actually made World War II go on longer than it should have. But at the very least, what you would say is nothing changes. If you remove him from the story, nothing changes. Either the Nazis never find it because they're digging in the wrong place or they find it. And then the war ends like whatever a year early that earlier than it should. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Pretty crazy, right? I like ruining movies for people. This is fun. I, this no, is no, really wait, fun. Could, could Indiana Jones go back in time and take himself <laughs> out of the timeline? Yeah. 10 minutes ought to do it. Yeah, Just go back 10 minutes before, before he finds the arc. <laughs> Join us next week when we uh, take on The Sixth Sense and what, what other movies are we going to ruin for people? Well, the, the, the goal should be to ruin the America's most beloved films, right? So <laughs> we'll just get a list of like the AFI's top 100 of all time. We'll just go in order. Starting we'll start with, with Wizard of Oz. We'll just Wizard of right Oz and Casablanca and whatever else you want. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think that's good. People will definitely tune in for that. All right. Well, Tommy uh, is is on the podcast because he's a, he's a great friend, but also very exciting news in the next. Uh, so this will probably come out probably one week before Tommy's first book, The Elephant in the Room, comes out. First of all, congratulations, Tommy. It's awesome. Uh, thanks. We just got the uh, just got the hardbacks in to the house the other day, which was sort of an amazing moment. Apparently, it's a real book, and they're actually going to publish it and all that cool stuff. So. Uh, yeah, I, I can't wait for this to happen. It's very, very exciting. All right, tell us a little bit about the book. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I want you to do it. Tell oh, us a little bit about the book. Okay, so I feel weird being on this very unserious podcast talking about serious things, but let me try to give it a, a quick shot. Don't worry, we we can ruin anything. Okay, we, good, good. I mean, just tell tell us what the book is about, and then we'll we book. will ruin the book for people. Beautiful, I love that. So. Uh, I am a, a large man. Uh, I've struggled with my weight my whole life. Um, and uh, at a few years ago, at the moment I started writing this book, I was sort of at my, at my highest weight, which was 460 pounds, which was sort of uh, a number I'd never told anybody. Nobody knew about it. My wife didn't know about it. Nobody knew the number. Obviously, you could look at me and tell I was a, a fat guy, but, but nobody knew that number. And I decided to once and for all confront my weight and try to figure out not just how to get in better shape and how to lose some weight and, you know, become a slimmer, healthier human being, but try to figure out like why I had done that for all these years, why I'd eaten so much, why I neglected to exercise, why I hadn't taken care of myself. And so this book is basically a sort of journey through me figuring all this stuff out, or at least trying to, and um, and sort of what I discover along the way, and hopefully it's useful, or maybe useful not just to people who are dealing like weight with weight like I am, but people who are dealing with any kind of, 
you know, issue in their lives, or maybe they know somebody who has some sort of issue like that in their lives, and they're trying to figure out what's going on inside that person's head. Um, what I'm trying to do in this book is take you inside my head and give you an idea of what that's like. Yeah, and uh, and by the way, I should say, I mean, I, I, it is a it is a serious topic, and you do some serious. Uh, thinking and, and, and all of that. But the book is also very funny. It's not, this is not a downer of a book. This is not, uh, you know, a book that's going to, I mean, this is, it's a, it's a really fun read, obviously on a, on a, on a topic that has been, um, first of all, that I think all of us struggle with in some way or another, uh, but also in, in a, in a way to, to, I mean, you're a very, you're a very funny person and, and you, you treat this with the, uh, you know, with, with both, with both the seriousness that, you know, of, of being thoughtful and all that, but also, um, it's also quite amusing to see you go through some of the things that you go through in this book. So, uh, it's fantastic. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful book is coming out on January 15th, right? So Tuesday. That's right. Yeah. Tuesday, doing a, coming out on the 15th, I'm doing a little kind of a, a brief tour for a couple of weeks. Um, and then uh, we'll see what happens. It's, uh, it's you know, you, you have been involved in this before and have kind of done this many times. This is all new to me. And so uh, I have to kind of figure out how to navigate all the kind of book tour stuff and, and interviews. You know, now I'm on the other side of the interview for the first time in many years. And it's really weird. And like, why do you ask all these you know, questions. And, uh, I'm realizing that I asked many of the exact same questions of other people over the years. So it's kind of, it's, uh, the karma is coming back around. And so, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited and thrilled about all of it and already hearing some good things and hearing from some people who have dealt with weight their whole lives or most of their lives and are finding that it kind of strikes a chord with them somewhere. So that's the most gratifying thing to me. Can it's I just very- say, um, in classic podcast fashion, I don't believe we have said the name of the book yet. <laughs> I said it. I did. I said did it you? up front. I did. It's- but let's say it again. Tommy, you said it's- the name of the book, please. It's a Blade Runner 2. Great. Like 2020- the novelization. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the book is uh, is The Elephant in the Room. And uh, that's that was actually a, a title that uh, my agent, Joe's agent, Sloan Harris, came up with um has a nice we feel like kind of a double meaning because i've often felt like i've been the elephant in the room is in in many situations and uh and it's also you know obviously stands for that kind of thing that people don't like to talk about and um so so we you know tried to get that kind of double meaning there too it's terrific i i the the advice i give to every uh writer who who is going to go through their first book tour uh, and I'm sure this is true in in entertainment as well. I'm sure Mike has had to deal with this many times. Prepare for this question. This is the question you will get asked the most. I'm guaranteeing this up front. The, the question you will be asked the most on radio, on television, in podcasts, everything else. What surprised you about doing this? That will be the question. <laughs> what surprised you? I And the reason I believe that is the question that everybody asks uh, is they never read the book before they do the interview. So it's always like, oh, you know, um, what surprised you about about uh, doing this book? So prepare that answer. That is the answer I think you're going to have to use the most often. Um, that's good because uh, I, you know, 
I don't know what surprised me yet. So I'll have to, I'll have to think of a surprise. You know what? That question surprised me. That's the thing that has surprised there you me go. the most. Don't let it. There it's you not, go. Not doing all this. So, uh, also that we, you know, talked about Back to the Future for 20 minutes. So I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm constantly surprised. And uh, so that, that, will, that will help out. It'll come out. I'm just telling you it'll come up. It's, it's, uh, nobody warns me. Um, you know, every book that I've done, every, every book tour I've done, no matter what it is, it's, well, what surprised you? What surprised you about, uh, this, uh, this whatever. And, uh, you need an answer. Just, just, I'm just giving you that advice right up front right here. So I think the TV equivalent is like, um, how'd you come up with the idea for this? <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I, get I that too. you get asked that so many times. And, and then at some point I started, um, I remembered a story where John Lennon, said was asked so many times like where they came up with the name the Beatles that he at one point said he had a dream where like a giant insect was standing on top of a flaming pie and he said <laughs> that he said you shall be called the Beatles with an A or whatever like he made it up and then people believed him and then that became like the official story for a while of how they came up with the the name <laughs> so, so what you're saying is I, I can't use that story. Yeah, I wouldn't use that exact one, but yeah. I, you know, you I would come up with something as uh, implausible. Yeah. You will probably get that question first. That that will be the question. So, oh, what made you think about writing? See, I don't this? think he will because it's autobiographical. So it's like, a, you know, it's not a it's not a piece of fiction. I think you only get asked that if it's a piece oh, of fiction. That might be Although that I, I have gotten asked a couple of times, what made you decide to do it now? Oh yeah, you, you know? okay. That's a version of it. That's yeah. a version of it. Yeah, I, I think it'll it, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. The Elephant in the Room comes out January fifteenth. Uh, please, uh, you'll love it. That, that, that's all. That's all I got to say. I'm sure we'll mention that again before the podcast is over. But we have to go on uh, to two uh, sort of main uh, points of discussion this week before we get to our draft. And the first point of discussion is, uh, Mike. I think uh, I think you probably have some very uh, based on the name you signed into this week into the podcast, uh, I think you probably have some thoughts on this. Uh, the baseball offseason has been pretty dry uh, as for the really for the second straight year. These it's it's very clear that nothing is going to happen in baseball from here on forward until like January, like late January, or like right before spring training. None of the really big free agents have signed. Uh, Bryce Harper and and uh, Manny Machado are still out there waiting to be signed, as are most of the others. Uh, there were there was a little bit of a flurry of trades, this crazy Reds deal and all that in December. But basically, the winter meetings was a dud and and not a whole lot happened. However, um, I just have this feeling that the Yankees are about to just wreck our lives. Yankee minute. I just, I just have this feeling <laughs> they, they often have before, but I just have this feeling. And I think it began, uh, just a couple of days ago. Why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you signed in your, your way this, uh, I, I signed in as too low and like, this is the perfect Yankee move because for several reasons, number one is he is going to be paid 20 million American dollars next year. <laughs> And the Toronto Blue Jays are going to pay him 19.5 million of those dollars or whatever to not play for them. And instead, he's going to play for their AL East rival, the New York Yankees. And I 
104% guarantee you that he's going to hit a home run in the first game against the, against the Blue Jays. Now they, so they need a shortstop for a while because uh, Didi has had a Tommy John surgery. So everyone is like, well, maybe that's Machado. Maybe they sign Machado to play third and they deal Andujar for Corey Kluber and they move Gliber Torres to short. But it's like, no, that's never the way it works. Like they might sign Machado anyway, but the way that this works, the way the Yankees work is, they get Troy Tulowitzki to play to to fill in for two and a half months, and they pay him the league minimum salary. <laughs> and Troy Tulowitzki is only he's like thirty four or something. He's right, not thirty three. Yeah, not, he's, he's thirty three or thirty four. He's not like this. Isn't like um, Omar Vizquel in his last year or something. He's he's thirty three or thirty four, and he's like two years removed from hitting twenty four home runs for the Blue Jays. Like yeah. He he I mean, he obviously the thing about him is that he's always hurt. He only played in like 60 games last year, whatever. But he's two years away from hitting 24 home runs in 131 games. And like, it's just like, why did they always get that guy? They just always get that guy. They and the Cardinals are the two two teams (laughs) who are you're always like, wait, how did they get Matt Holiday so easily? I don't understand. Like everyone could have gotten Matt Holiday. Like they just always figure out the exact best thing to do, and the, and I feel like we we know what's going to happen here, right? He's going to go to the Yankees, and there's going to be a bunch. You start writing these articles now, sports writers. Here's the article. Um, I'll I'll give you the whole thing right now. I'm going to improvise it off the top of my head. Tulo finds renewed success in New in the Bronx, like Dateline, New York. April 30th, 2019, you know, getting out on the field early to take some infield work. Troy Tulowitzki looked as slick as he ever has. You know, in in 21 games with the Yankees, the veteran shortstop has, has a new lease on life with eight home runs in April and a newfound opposite field stroke. I'm just trying to help the team do whatever I can to help the team win. It's a big opportunity for me and blah, 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 said Tori Tulowitzki. Like, just write the article now because it's what's going to happen. He's going to play for two months. He's going to play in April and May and half of June. And there will be at some point a moment where he's on the 15-day DL with a strained something or other. But it won't matter because in the time that uh, Didi is out, he's going to play in like 78 games for the Yankees. And he's going to hit 14 home runs and he's going to play like gold glove caliber defense. And what do I here's I guarantee will happen. He will get hurt the day before <laughs> Didi comes off the DL. And so they'll just swap them. He'll go on the 60 day DL and Didi will come off. They won't even have to make a 40 man roster move. And then 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 he will come back in September and they'll work him back in as they're doing their like final playoff run. And right. he'll be on the postseason roster as the oh, backup yeah. infielder. And he'll make like and he'll get like four key hits in the postseason right. oh, and yeah. he'll Two win it. Runs. Yeah, Two exactly. Yeah. Like and it's it's so infuriating that like they just cap they they capitalize on every other team's mistakes so effectively. Like Brian Cashman, for a long time I didn't really think Brian Cashman was a good GM when in back in the in the early days of his tenure. I sort of thought like, well, he's got the most money and he's got the the team that everybody wants to play for. And so like, you know, whatever, a trained monkey could do that job. But I now think he's like one of the best GMs in baseball. Like yeah. he just is so good at this particular thing, these roster hole filling moves, these veteran moves. And granted, he does have a little bit of a 
uh, advantage because the team's always in contention. So veterans always want to go there because they are, can play on a big stage. They can rejuvenate their careers. They have a good chance at making the playoffs and winning a ring, et cetera, et cetera. But he still always seems to do the exact thing that his team needs him to do. And I, and this is a classic example. Like this is, I, I would be shocked if Troy Tulowitzki didn't meaningfully contribute to the first half of the Yankees 2019 season. Well, and we should we should fully we should fully uh, explain this. You're right; he is 34 years old. He didn't play at all last year. The the, the year the, you're talking about. The, oh, that's uh, right. He missed all of last year and the year all before is the year. Right? Yeah. Right. So it was the year before. So he's three years. So in 2016, he had 24 home runs. I already told uh, everybody he's going to hit like 27 home runs or 23 home runs, some some number above 20. And I got a a, a text or an email from uh, our. Uh, uh, beloved Yankee hate lover, uh, Alan Sepinwall, who said, well, I hope that doesn't happen because that means they won't sign uh, Machado. And and I was like, you don't understand. You're a Yankee fan. You of all people, he's going to do it in 73 games. He's going to have like, he's going to play like 73 games and he's going to hit like 22 home runs. And you could be like, what? This is absolutely ridiculous, but he's going to, uh, you know this, He th- there's just every single thing points to, uh, him being some sort of crazy pickup, some sort of amazing thing, and the Yankees are going to be, and they're going to sign everybody. They're going to sign Machado. They're going to sign whoever they want. They're going to get Kluber. They're going to get Kluber. They're not even give up anybody that you that you think is any good. I mean, it's. I just sense. Oh wait, no, they're going to flip too low for Kluber halfway <laughs> through the year. That's what's going to happen. He's going to hit twenty home runs by the All Star break, make the All Star team, and they're going to literally trade him for Corey Kluber, and then he'll get hurt when he's on the Indians. That'll That's, happen. Uh, Tommy, um, here, you oh. know what else is going to happen? By the way, somehow, or I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but somehow, the Yankees are going to play both Machado and Andujar at third. At the same time, I'm saying, and and everyone will be like, "Well, wait, they can't do this." There's they have ten guys in the lineup, and then people are going to go, "No, it's a go, it's okay." They they, okay. they got permission, and we're going to be like, "Well, but that doesn't that's insane." There's that they have a shortstop, and then they're just playing two third basemen like Andujar's playing behind, like four feet behind Machado, in case Machado like get, drops the ball, and and you're going to yeah 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 they, it's fine they it's it's, okay. it's technically. It's a loophole in the rules that they found that no one else can do, just them. And then you're going to be like, but wait, that doesn't make any sense. They have 10 guys in the lineup. Like Machado is hitting fifth and Andujar is hitting sixth. And, but, then, but then they have 10 guys in the lineup and you're, people are just going to go, yeah, that's, they are allowed to do it. No, that's fine. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's, they figured out it. We looked, up, we looked well, it up and the Yankees are allowed to do that. Because they picked up Tulo, who didn't play all of last year. Yes, there's a, in, the, in this last CBA, there was this thing that was slipped in where if you, if you pick up a veteran who's been in the league for more than 10 years on the league minimum salary and he stays within his own division that he last played for, you're allowed to play two third basemen at the same time. Third basemen, but only third base and no other position. That's right. That's a, it's weird. I, no one could understand why they put it in the CBA, but it, they did, and, and the Yankees are the only team that it applies to, so they get to have two third basemen in, in playing defense. I think that's legit. I think that's legitimate. You know, uh, from a baseball perspective, Tommy has been, you're a lifelong uh, Braves fan, right? You, you got I am. I, oh, yeah. It's good. First of all, for the Yankees, I think, I think that's going to be the compromise when they take away the shift. They're going to say, you can't do the shift anymore, but the Yankees <laughs> can, can two have third two third basemen. Base. So, yeah. Interesting. So that's, and then the, 
that's exactly then, how they're going to do the shift. They're going to say, you know what? You want more than one person on the left side of the infield? Fine, you right. play two third baseman. That's but, gonna be but somehow the Yankees <laughs> will also be able to do the shift, and there will be some thing in the CBA that will say, well, yeah, that's the that's the uh, Machado rule, and we put that in. That's right. Sort of like the Larry Bird rule in the NBA. You know, you, you can pay your own players. Yeah. It'll just be this one thing, this one really, really specific thing that AL teams from New York are allowed to play two well, defensive third basemen at the same a, time. This is a great question. This is a great sports question. What are the teams in every league that that would get like this kind of exemption? Like it's clearly in baseball, it's the Yankees. Clearly like the Yankees, there'd be some weird thing. But you mentioned the Larry Bird thing. I don't think it's true anymore, but I think that used to be true for the Celtics. Like there used to be just like, it's like Red Auerbach would just make up. We're like, oh, I could draft that guy. Like, yeah. you can't, you're not allowed to. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just changed everything. I'm allowed to do whatever I want. And it's like every sport uh, has like that team that is allowed to do that sort of thing. Like what would be the team in each sport that would be allowed to, uh, to, to sort of, they're the ones that for whatever reason, the rules. But, and the interesting part of that is i don't think in football it's the patriots no no because it's not i think it's the cowboys the i think yeah. it's the cowboys right or something it could be the maybe steelers yeah i know you in know? basketball it was definitely yeah. the celtics forever because not only did they sort of bend the rules but other teams were just incredibly stupid every time they dealt with the Celtics. <laughs> like the the celtics traded away the number one pick in whatever year it was they ended up being joe barry carroll and they got back yeah. Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. And, and yeah. you know, so it's like other teams just fall down to give them, you know, the pieces they need. And the Yankees are the same way. And I think maybe the Steelers in football too. It always, it always feels like yeah. the Steelers are, you know, they ended up getting somebody with like a sixth round pick or some trade. And they end up with this, you know, un, unceasing, you know, group of, of guys who just keep doing well without ever, without ever firing a coach, without ever, you know, really changing the structure of the way they do things. They just keep playing well. Yeah. Well, it's, and there's, you know, I, I have a very good friend who's a Bengals fan, which is by the way, now the worst, uh, now that the Browns are, are, are really kind of fun and exciting. The Bengals, you don't want to be a Bengals fan. And his belief is that whatever the, it's like, it's like every time the Steelers like do something terrible, like one of their players give, you know, some sort of crazy helmet to helmet late hit or whatever, the Bengals get penalized <laughs> for it. Like, it's like the, like whatever, whatever the Steelers do, the Bengals, like that to me is the Steelers thing. Like the Steelers are allowed to like do whatever they want and never get fined and never get anything. And, and, uh, and everybody else like is plays by, by a different, a different rule set. So, uh, this could just be my Browns fanhood and and lifelong hatred of the Steelers coming out, but but I feel like that they're the team. That it seems like a good segue into a quick Browns update. We do need a little quick Browns update. Let's check in on the Cleveland Browns. How are they doing? As I'm sure everybody knows, the Browns uh, did end up uh, losing the last game of the year in in sort of uh, a little bit of heartbreaking fashion. Although they were uh, they were in position to to beat a Ravens team that that was actually playing for something, which is which was crazy. Had they won that game, they would have actually finished with a winning record, which is beyond belief. As it is, they finished seven eight and one, uh, which is insane. 
insane for an 0 and 16 team the year before and a 1 and 15 team the year before that. And I mean, I, 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 there's just nothing but excitement, right? About the Browns. I mean, there's, there's, you know, this, I, I look at this team. I don't, I don't, I have nothing to complain about other than we don't know who I, they're going to hire as their coach. But other than that. No, but I, I would say two things about this. Number one is that game, the Ravens are the hottest team in football yeah. and they, uh, the Browns were in the game until the very last oh, play. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. After, by the way, being down big, they were down 13 or 14 points or something and, and clawed their way back. Mayfield yeah. didn't play particularly well through an interception on his first pass. Right. And then they just like clawed their way back into a game against totally. maybe the best defense in football. Right. And, and so, what about their, what about their, we have to talk for a minute, Tommy, Tommy B Tommy is the biggest, by far the biggest college football fan amongst <laughs> us. Um, did you ever think you would see an NFL team basically running like the Vince Dooley Georgia offense from 1980? I mean, that's they're, they're <laughs> like 300 yards a game rushing the football. I think they're absurd. running the veer. If I I believe that's what they're. I think I, I the last time I saw that was the uh, Oklahoma Nebraska game in 1972. Yeah, 1971. Yeah. 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 It's the it's a, the very most recent is the Tommy Frazier Nebraska <laughs> offense, yeah, right? It's basically yeah. like it's the fight. It's the Lawrence. What was Lawrence his name? Lawrence Phillips. Phillips? Yeah, is that what the guy's <laughs> terrible yeah. person who was a great running back? Yes. Um, which could right. describe a lot of running backs, I guess. But, um, but yeah, that it's just <laughs> insane to see that offense where it's like, we're never going to throw it. Um, we're going to run. We have like four plays and you can't stop it. And that theoretically, theoretically that it. works in college because the talent is sort of diluted and the talent gap it's bigger, but you know what? It turns out it can also work in the pros if you have Lamar Jackson running it, which is, you know, kind of a big thing. The, the best thing it's about crazy. the, the, in fact, the only good thing about the Ravens March uh, into the playoffs is that with every victory, um, Bill Polian shrinks, shrivels up four four percent of his body weight disappears, and he shrivels up into more of a little weird old racist raisin. <laughs> That's the only don't good thing think, about don't it. Don't you think the the the? <laughs> well, I think there too, because don't you think the gradual burying of Joe Flacco is kind of in, in entertaining? I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, I get. I mean, I it like I I I don't know. I okay. I don't I don't like Joe Flacco. I don't I'm think not, he's any good. But I also like I can't get that upset. He's he's not like a he doesn't appear to be at least a like bad person. Oh, He's no, just like no, an overrated no, no. QB. So I don't, I just like that. I just like that there were people who were like, like Bill Polian, who were like that quarterback should actually be a wide receiver. Like we, we literally had to live that again after a, an unbelievably incredible college career. And now he's just like, take, he picked up a moribund team and carried them into the playoffs by himself. Totally. And uh, at least offensively. Offense. And now, and I just, that's wonderful to me. Like that, that was the best part of it. <laughs> but the other thing I was going to say about the Browns is right now you have to take, you, you can be the GM or head coach or whatever you want of any AFC North team. You choose the Browns, oh, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's the real, like the real kind of shocker about this. I mean, I know the Ravens made the playoffs and the Browns didn't, but I kind of feel like if you right now had to make that choice and you looked at the the 1 to 53 roster of every one of those NFC AFC North teams, I mean the the Steelers are a mess, Brown is a mess, Levion Ball uh, Levion Bell's leaving, Roethlisberger is going to be 37, like it's not the Steelers, it's definitely no. not the Bengals. So it's either the Browns or the Ravens and I kind of think with Baker there 
And with like that, that, that defense and the picks they have in the future, especially this year, I think you take the Browns, right? I think, I think the Browns are going to be, they're going to be favored to win that division next year. I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. I yeah, mean, that, I've, yeah. I've, written, I've written, I think that they're going to be, they'll be the hot Super Bowl pick. Like, like, you know how there's always the crazy, you know, you know, whoever you know, used to be like back in the eighties, it used to be sport magazine would always come out with, you know, their, their covers, you know, why Wayne Gretzky's not the best player, you know, and you know, just those, those kind of the hot takes before the old hot take uh, thing ever existed. And the Browns, there will be like, they will be the hot, you know, they're, they're ready right now to go to the Super Bowl pick. I mean, they're not, you know, quite at that level, but I think they legitimately could win the division next year, uh, depending, certainly depending on how they do on their draft and depending who they hire as their coach. I think that's the, that's the one still question mark about this team is they're going to have to, they're going to basically from a football perspective, I think going into this year, the Red Sox and the nationals had the same choice. They were both incredibly talented teams coming off of, weirdly disappointing years that weren't that bad, you know, like they were still, they were still good, but it was still disappointing because they didn't quite go all the way. And, and there was some underachievement or whatever. And they both decided we're moving on from our manager and they each made a hire like, okay, here's the deal. You've got to come in and you got to win right away. You have no time to grow. You have no time to develop uh, yourself or your players. This is it. We got to hit the ground running and the Red Sox, chose wisely to go back to Indiana <laughs> Jones and the nationals chose, chose poorly. And I mean, they both went, kind of went the same way. They both took young guys who, who had been, you know, who had been part of, you know, successful organizations and successful managers. And uh, the Red Sox chose, I think, I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, Mike, but I think if I, if I can have anybody right now, any young manager, I mean, obviously you got the older guys, but I have any young manager, he's the guy I take. And the Nationals hired a guy they're going to fire next year. Yeah, I I mean, it it is interesting to see that the the sort of narrative that coaches don't matter in sports. Yeah. <laughs> I think it has been blown up a little bit because yeah, I it was overdone. Uh, even in baseball, like just all of the stories that came out of the Alex Cora era, all of yeah. like telling oh, Mookie Betts to be more aggressive and, right. and the way that he managed the pitching staff and, and then the march through the playoffs and the way that he handled the 18 inning loss. Like, and then you look at the Browns and it's like, well, Hugh Jackson was one in 30, whatever <laughs> one. Right. Yeah. I mean, and like, yeah. Or worse, I guess. Right. Well, he was, he was one, one in 15 those two years. And then he, then he was two and five or something this year. Before right. Him, so. And then they brought in a new guy and the new guy is like a guy who's been around for a long time and has yes. been called a very good coach or a very good coordinator at least. But like, it's was it wasn't uh, Sean McVay. It wasn't some like young whiz kid. It was Greg Williams. Like he's been, he's been around <laughs> for a long time. Been suspended, but, like the whole thing. Yeah, but like the addition by subtraction, it seems like at the very least, and the insertion of of Baker Mayfield into the starting lineup, like it was like, yeah, now this is a this is a borderline playoff team, and so you know, I the the. The coach thing is huge, and they, you know, did I read that they interviewed Jim Caldwell? Because that's a little concerning to me. Well, here's the thing, and this is really, really, this speaks to. Now we're going to start talking about things I hate about the NFL. Everybody's interviewed Jim Caldwell. Jim Caldwell's been interviewed by like seven teams. Why? 
Why do you think Jim Caldwell keeps getting interviewed? Because this stupid league uh, cannot just hire people based on quality and has to like have to have it thrown in their face. You have to hire, you have to look at minority candidates. You have to, you know, and it's, it's absurd. And by the way, minority candidates took a tremendous beating this off season. They all got fired basically across the board and uh, which is, you know, is what it is. But you know, that's, that's, I don't think that Jim call, I feel bad for Jim Caldwell because I think he is basically the guy that a lot of people hired to get around that rule uh, or, or interviewed to get around that rule. And I don't think anybody's going to hire him. I mean, maybe well, it's a condom. It's a condemnation of the, of the league itself yes. and of the coaching ranks that there yes. aren't 700 well-qualified minority candidates who have come up through the normal path that white candidates have come up through forever. So that if that you don't just pick one guy and go just knock it off, like, check off that box by interviewing Jim Caldwell. I don't know Jim Caldwell. He might be a, he might be a really great coach. He yeah, might be a sure. good coordinator. I don't know. But the, the problem is if that is true, the problem is, is there should be 50 legitimate, right. well positioned minority candidates who are all available and good candidates for these jobs. It shouldn't be the case. First of all, look, I think the Rooney rule is very well intentioned and I like oh, that it exists it because it it's is. like, it's just, it, it, for it's, it's sometimes you have to grab an, a calcified institution and drag it into the present day. <laughs> that's and right. that's what I think the Rooney rule was trying to do. It was trying to say like, all right, if you're not going to just not be racist, we're going to force your hand <laughs> and force you for at least a second to not be racist. Right. So, the, so I think it's good in that sense, but the problem is if you don't, if there isn't a more thorough top to bottom reevaluation of the way that people are promoted through the ranks, then it's not going to be worthwhile because in order for it to work, you need to have a number of non-white candidates who have who are tight end coaches and line coaches and assistant right. coaches and this coaches and that coaches and this coordinator and that coordinator. And so if that is the case, if that if Jim Caldwell is like their teams are interviewing Jim Caldwell so they can check off that box, then then we might as well get rid of the rule because well, that's right. that's exactly the whole right. point of the rule is to promote diversity and to promote like people who, who haven't gotten promoted in the past. And if you're just going to take a guy who was fired for not doing a very good job in one place and just run him through a sort of like, you know, check off this box kind of like hour long, thanks for coming in, buddy. Like, then what are we doing here? I mean, well, Ryan Flores, who is the defensive coordinator for the Patriots has been interviewed by a bunch of places too. I don't know. I think it seems like he's done a decent job with a sort of patchwork defense at times, but you know, I, I know that there are at least a couple other people who are, who are non-Caucasian who are getting consideration. Yes, but yes. it shouldn't be a couple people. It should be it should be half the league, frankly. Like, given the racial breakdown of the of the rosters, it should be like more than half of the head coaches should be non-white. Uh, and so, like, I just, I hope that that's not the case. I hope that Jim Caldwell is like actually talented and good at his job and well, is being beloved. He, look, he did have some success. I mean, it's not like he's somebody who's he's not up. He's I mean, he's a legitimate candidate. My concern is exactly what you're saying, though. My concern is that it's a you're following the the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law, right? You're you're not you're not really living up to the spirit of the rule, which should be to encourage diversity. We talked about this on this podcast. I mean uh, women as coaches. I mean, it's, it's absurd. You, you're not using, you're not using 50%, 51% of the brain power in this country to try to, yeah. <laughs> to try to get better in football. I mean, it's absurd. So I, I do think that there's, 
there's a lot going on here. I think Jim Caldwell, I feel, I feel bad for him. I hope he does actually at the end of the day, get a job out of this. Uh, because they, like I say, he did have some success for sure. He's not, he's not somebody, he's not honestly. And I mean this, you know, I look, I, I, I suffered with it for, for, for four years. It's not Hugh Jackson. He's not a guy that came in and failed. Uh, he's a guy who has had success, but the fact everybody's interviewing him, everybody's interviewing him tells you that there's a, there's a, there's a box checking situation going on here. Mm. So Tommy, well, Jim Caldwell, a is an okay coach. B, yeah. He's an okay coach. B he was the best coach the Detroit Lions have had in like 30 years. <laughs> and so, you know, it, I think it depends on what you need. The Browns, you know, he would not be, you know, he would obviously be an upgrade from Hugh, but he would not be an upgrade from some other people they could get. But don't you think it's going to be really, really hard not to give Greg Williams that job? Yeah, it's going to be hard. I, I hope they I hope they don't give it to him. No, And, and that's not even a knock on Greg Williams. Uh, I, I mean, if, he, an amazing if he doesn't get the job, apparently there are many other candidates who would give him a job from what I've, from what he said. Right. He said there were like six or eight other people, you know, looking to hire him when he was talking about the Browns. So, yeah, so he'll, yeah, well, he'll, I'm, he'll I'm land sure. on his feet. I'm not sure. I'm, yeah, he'll land on his feet. I'm not worried <laughs> about him for like his career. Uh, look, he did an amazing job. He really did. He came in, he was given a, you know, I wrote about that. He was given a dead bouquet of flowers when he came in and took the Browns job. And, uh, he totally settled things. Uh, Freddie kitchens who, who had never called a play in his life That's became this guy. sort of wonder kind as a offensive coordinator, which is another, you know, it's exactly along the lines of what Mike is saying. Freddie Kitchens, if the Browns had not fired Hugh Jackson and and uh, and Todd Haley, who was the offensive coordinator, nobody would ever know that Freddie Kitchens was this was this sort of mind, you know, this offensive mind the way he is shown to be, because he never would have gotten that chance, or he would have gotten it, you know, years from now or whatever. Instead, the Browns were just they were like, ah, forget it. This whole thing is just give that guy the job. It's the easiest thing to do. And he turned out to be great, which tells you there are so many good, smart people out there that are not getting the chance. And that's what bothers me about keep interviewing Jim Caldwell's is there are so many smart, uh, promising young coaches in the NFL who, you know, are, are either not getting promoted or not getting, uh, you know, an opportunity and the league would prefer to just like, all right, let's just keep hiring the same guys and keep checking the same boxes on the Rooney rule and all these other things. So anyway, that's, I, I, I've said this before. There's a, there's a parallel here in Hollywood. Um, so take, for example, crazy rich Asians. Um, mm-hmm. that movie was huge, gigantic, massive smash Ooh. success. It was directed yeah. by a guy named John Chu, who I don't know. I just know the name. And, um, and you know, he now can kind of do whatever he wants. I'm sure they're doing a sequel to that movie. I'm sure that he'll, he can write his own ticket and direct whatever he wants. Cause that movie made a billion dollars right now to me though. And ev- and everyone is correctly saying like, what a, what a great step forward for whatever you want to call it, inclusion or diversity or whatever, like a non-Caucasian director directed a movie with an all East Asian cast. And that movie was a massive crossover popular success. Wonderful event in Hollywood history, American history, long overdue, et cetera, et cetera. My thing though is true equality, uh, true like, uh, and, and this would go for coaching ranks in the NFL or directors in Hollywood or really any group that has been 
essentially white male dominated forever. True equality won't be when we get crazy rich Asians. True equality will be when John Chu is allowed to make like four <laughs> deeply mediocre movies in right. a row, right. all of which are met with like middling critical success and middling financial success. And he then still gets to make more movies, yeah. right? That's like right. that's the thing. Because like the the their number of mediocre white dude coaches in the NFL or mediocre white dude directors in Hollywood or any group like that, the, who just get chance after chance after chance after chance, same with managers in baseball, same with anything, they just keep getting hired and they're mediocre and you know they're mediocre and they just keep getting they just keep getting handed jobs after job after job after job. So I feel like that's when we'll know that we've truly hit equality is when someone like Jim Caldwell doesn't just get interviewed by a bunch of teams. He just keeps getting hired. Like <laughs> right. he goes to the Bengals and he's there for a while and then he gets fired. And then he's like a coordinator on the on the Falcons. And then he gets the head coaching job with the Falcons. And he just is like He's just what whoever Jim Leland. He's Jim. He's Jim Leland forever. And then, and then he like wins a Super Bowl, and everyone's like, "Hey, good for Jim Caldwell. He's been uh, slugging it out in the in the salt mines for uh, you know twenty five years, and he won a Super Bowl. Great job." And like that, that's when we'll truly know that we've that we don't need the Rooney Rule or anything like it. Is when then the amount of mediocrity that the league that any league finds acceptable and keeps rewarding people for is the same for people of any ethnicity. Well, I got to say, I mean, you've sort of nailed exactly my biggest problem of all with Greg Williams, right? Greg Williams's career, he was a fairly hot young coach. I mean, he coached the Titans defense when they went to the Super Bowl, but I mean, whatever that's worth. But he was a hot coach at the time and several teams went after him. Buffalo hired him. Very, very mediocre to bad in Buffalo. Gets fired. Uh very quickly becomes the highest paid offensive coordinator. I mean, defensive coordinator in the, in football for the Redskins. Then he goes to new Orleans, uh, gets into the whole bounty gate thing, gets, gets, uh, uh, you know, fired and suspended lands on his feet, ends up with the Rams, you know, keeps finding things, finds his way to become defensive coordinator for the Browns, even though he really hadn't done a great job as a defensive coordinator anywhere else, pretty miserable. His first year, Owen 16 keeps his job, Suddenly he's uh, suddenly he's interim coach for the Browns and he does a really really good job. I'm, you tell me, could that happen to an African American <laughs> coach? Could that story happen? And now everybody's like, well, you'll be tough to not give him the job, which is true. But it's like, man, you know, I don't know. You put that body of work up. I don't know how many people get suspended and suddenly and get hired the minute that they're available. I mean, right. it's, yes. you know, it's, the, 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 um, the rewards that have, a, uh, he has accrued for a long career of like some slight ups and a couple of pretty significant <laughs> downs. Like that's what you want for everyone, regardless of ethnicity, right? right. That's, that's what equality will look like is when, there's an African-American coach who has Greg Williams' exact resume, including a league suspension. <laughs> and then that coach is like, and everyone's like, well, you got to give him that job. Like that's, that's when we'll know. Like that's, that's when we'll truly know that we've arrived as a culture. And by the way, the Bengals might hire Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackson might be a breakthrough guy in this situation. I mean, if I if love it, Bengals, I would love it if you. Yeah. I, I, I. He seems like a nice person. He is. From, I think he is a nice. Person. And so I would love it if he could be the. Um, the, essentially the Jackie Robinson of African-American NFL coaching <laughs> mediocrity, where he has like a 35 year career 
where he's highly paid and keeps getting job after job after job, despite never quite reaching any like nine. And he goes nine and seven for the Bengals next year. And they're like, well, good job. There you go. Good job. Yeah, his career, that, his and career. that extends his career by 10 years. Right. And his career record ends up being like 164, 163 and two. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, he'd have to be pretty good to get that record yeah. at this point. Yeah, that's right. That, that might be, that might be too much. Cause that would mean he's had a lot of like 12 and four seasons. <laughs> By the way, um, with when it comes to uh, Hugh Jackson, the main reason I want him hired is just so we can everybody can lose their mind when Baker Mayfield does some stuff on the field toward him, right? Yeah. I mean, like, like just just have that every single game, some version of that. That that's that's the main reason that you want him as coach. All right, I did a little poll on. Uh, well, I actually did several polls on um, Twitter yesterday. And the results are in, and I wanted to ask each of you guys the answer to this, because there is a specific reason I did this, which I'm sure most people who fill these polls out uh, can figure out. So the, 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 there's a very, it's a very, very simple question that I will ask each of you. I think there are five of them. And, and you know, obviously you guys can say whatever you want, but the question is very specific. It's not, it, it, people have, have sort of blown them up into meaning something else or whatever, but they're very, very specific. So I'm going to ask each of you guys these questions and you can give me your answers. Okay. All right. First question, uh, Mike, I guess you can start simple question, Jack or tiger. Um, I mean, it's recency bias, but tiger. All right, Tommy. Uh, I'm, I'm also taking tiger. Okay. Very good. Next one. Pele, Pele, Pele. What the heck is that? <laughs> Pele or Messi? Mike? Uh, Messi. Tommy? I'm taking Pele. I like it. I like that. It's just because you don't care about soccer that much, but, but it's, that's a good one. All right. Uh, this is going to be a tough one for both of you. Cause I don't think either one of you care particularly. Uh, how or Crosby? I, I literally don't feel qualified yeah, to answer this question. <laughs> You're not, but that's okay. You got to pick it. It's Gordy Howe or Sidney Crosby. Who who would you take? Uh, Gordy Howe. Okay, Tommy. Gordy Howe played when he was 51 years old and scored like 25 goals a year. I'm taking Gordy Howe. Look at you, look at you. You're just a font. A font. A font of is font or fountain. I don't know. Of of hockey knowledge. All right, Montana or Brady. I mean, come on. <laughs> what, what are we doing here? Okay. We know who you're taking. Tommy? God, it, it kills me to say it, but I'm taking Brady. All right. Two more. Ruth or Trout? Trout. Easy. Tommy? Well, this gets into what question are you asking? Um, no, it doesn't. That, that, that's, that's that's why I didn't do any of that. I did none of that. It's just Ruth or Trout. That's it. Trout. That's the only thing on the question. I'm taking Trout. I'm taking... You know it's Trout. Just say Trout. It's Ruth. All right. Oh my God. All right. Last one. Michael LeBron. LeBron. <laughs> LeBron. LeBron. Here's, here's Tommy. I'll say this again for the record. If LeBron at his peak played Jordan at his peak one-on-one -on -one and LeBron got the ball first and it was make it, take it, Michael would never get the ball. LeBron would win 10 nothing. He's way taller and outweighed him by like 75 pounds. 
There is he's a better three point shooter. He's a better <laughs> driver. He's a better at everything. He's a better rebounder and a better passer. LeBron. <laughs> so how do you feel? How do you feel about that? I'm not clear. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm thinking LeBron too, but I saw somebody posted a clip a couple of days ago about. I think it was Michael Wilbon interviewing Jordan back in like 2009 or something and asked him, asked Jordan if he was the best player. And Jordan gave this very diplomatic answer. I didn't play against Wilt Chamberlain. I didn't play against Jerry West. So I can't really say. And I thought, you know, I've seen people lie on television before. (laughs) I have never seen anybody tell as bald faced a lie. You know, Oh, yeah. thinks he's, uh, still. No, it's not even close. He has always thought. He probably thought that way when he was in North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys did you guys see the um LeBron interview uh the other day where he was like he was talking about the championship in Cleveland. He was like, That one right there, when I won that one, that made me the best of all time. And I was like, <laughs> Whoa! Can you imagine having oh, first of all, he's probably right, yeah. but also uh, can you imagine having that level of confidence? Like, I was just oh, yeah. like, I would love to have that level of confidence for 30 <laughs> seconds to just be just very like you're he was reporting on it like it was just a fact. He was reporting on it like he was saying, I went to the store and I went to I was I needed uh, Cheerios and, and then I went to aisle four and that's where the Cheerios were. Like that was that was the like mundanity <laughs> of his proclamation that that when he won that championship, that made him the best of all time. It was so cool. I loved it so much. I wrote the I wrote that Roy Halladay Hall of Fame piece, and that made me the best of all time. That's it. That's <laughs> yeah, what exactly. Yeah, yeah. Episode uh, fifteen of season four of Parks and Recreation. When I finished that one, I was like, "Yep, that I'm the best writer of all time." <laughs> it's like he had there was, there was one box left to check. He's like, "Okay, the list is finished. I'm done." Yep, I'm done now. I mean, I'll, I'll keep playing just because why not? But I am the best of all time. <laughs> Oh, I love that so much. All right. The reason I asked all of you guys, oh, wait, did you, did you say, oh, you said LeBron. Okay. Yeah. Reason I asked you guys is I have this theory and Mike and I have talked about this a lot of times. There's a lot of talk about recency bias. I don't believe in it. I don't think recency bias is real. I mean, I think it's real and like something happens today. Then you, you like, oh, that game I just saw was the greatest game of all time. That kind of recency bias. Uh, I agree with. I think we always underestimate and underrate the players we are watching in the moment. That is my belief. So I put these polls up to see how people would respond. I didn't put up, and everybody thought I was putting who the best player of all time is. I wasn't necessarily. I didn't even put Gretzky in the hockey thing, for instance. I really just wanted to put, all right, this incredible player from the old days, this incredible player from today, uh, which one is better? Uh, as you guys might imagine, Jack and Tiger split up about 50-50. And I realized that Tiger was not the right guy to do that poll with because Tiger's kind of an old guy now already. Like, there's nostalgia about Tiger. I really should have put, like, like you know, Tom Watson and Brooks Kepka or some golfer. Jason Day. Right, Jason, right, exactly. Some golfer from today. But anyway, that's about 50-50, which is kind of what I thought. I was very surprised to see that Pele uh, actually beat Messi in the poll, which that really surprised me. So, but it fits in my theory that old guys still carry the day. I don't see, I mean, and Paley was incredible absolutely incredible player. I don't see how you could think anybody's ever been better than Messi, right? Mike, am I remembering? No, Messi's the best uh, of all time. I I mean, my gosh. All right. How in Crosby, I did that. Um, I couldn't think of it. I don't think Crosby 
quite fits. I mean, cause like really, really like in depth hockey people, I guess, think of him as an all time great, but a lot of other people on the outside don't how went one, that one going away for the old guys. All right. Babe Ruth kind of destroyed trout. That's uh, insane. That's insane. He didn't play against most of the world. That's right. And he was, he was like the, the fastest fastball that he faced was probably about 89 miles an hour. Oh or yeah. Something. And that was Walter Johnson's fastball. That was like, that was the, that was the peak fast. He hit home runs off of people who were throwing 400 innings a year. Like Mike <laughs> Trout, every Walter single Trout. at bat Mike Trout has is harder than any at bat that Babe Ruth ever had ever. Well, and here's the really annoying one. This was the really annoying part of the Ruth Trout argument. And look, you can argue, all right, uh, the only fair way to do it is to judge people against their time. Nobody dominated their time like Ruth. Okay, you can make the argument if you want. You can you can frame this any way you want to frame it. But my thought on the on the question is people were like, Well, did Mike Trout pitch? Yeah, Babe Ruth pitch. That's the that's always the <laughs> Babe Ruth final. Hey, did Mike Trout pitch? If Mike Trout played in 1918, he would have pitched, right? I mean, it's like like the idea that back then all you had to do was throw 84 miles an hour and you were a good pitcher. Mike Trout could throw 84 miles an hour. Mike Trout listen, would have pitched. Listen, this is very simple. Take a video <laughs> of anything Mike Trout has ever done in the field. I like any one of those, any one of those hundreds of times where he like ran back to the fence and jumped up and robbed a home run. Right. Or anytime he like take a stopwatch and clock him going from home to second on a double right. or, 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 or literally anything. Just take a, take a 12 second video of him taking batting practice, <laughs> go back in time, show it to people in Babe Ruth's time, their heads will explode. I mean, first you have to explain what like video is and their heads would explode at that. But they would, they, they, the idea that none of them ever played against an athlete who looked or acted or did anything remotely close to anything that Mike Trout has done. None of them ever played against anyone as good as Billy Hamilton. I mean, this is insane. The idea that like, we like this, he was a hundred years ago, he was 73 pounds overweight. He's they all, they chain smoked, they drank whiskey. They, they worked at like leather tanneries in the off season. These this is not what we think of as baseball. Like it's, it's, the the athleticism on display in 2019 by the average MLB player so far outshines the greatest athlete of 1923. It's not. It's two different sports. Like it is. I get. I get that nobody dominated his time like Babe Ruth. Nobody also played the limited competition that That's he right. played against. There were no Dominican players. There were no Puerto Rican players. There were no African American players. There were guys literally playing like in the same state as Babe Ruth at the same time as Babe Ruth, who were probably as good as Babe Ruth. Josh Gibson was as good a hitter as Babe Ruth is, sure. and he wasn't allowed to play. The idea that anyone could ever say that Babe Ruth has like, the, like look at him. Look at him. He was fat. He was a fat person. He, You know who he was? He was Cecil Fielder. Like if Babe Ruth played nice. to, in today's game, he would be Cecil Fielder. He would hit insane home runs. And it would be it would be amazing, and people would marvel at his incredible strength. Blah 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 blah. And then he would like get really fat, and he would wash out of the league. And he wouldn't be a pitcher, by the way. He wouldn't come close to being a pitcher in, in Major League Baseball in the 2019. Like Mike Trout is 40 times the athlete that Babe Ruth is, and the idea that anyone could ever argue the other way is insanity to me. Well, speaking, well Tommy, speaking, you picked Babe Ruth. <laughs> 
as a representative of insanity, I guess I'd just like to to kind of complete the circle on this and and say, so Mike, I think what you're saying is based on you know what we've seen in in the historical record is that you think Marty McFly was a better musician than Chuck Berry. <laughs> oh, come on. First because of all, you, you took Marty McFly back and he blew the minds, right, of everybody in that audience. And so he, by that standard, I think, has to be a better musician than Chuck Berry. But Mike yeah. Trout didn't rip off <laughs> the, the moves of Babe Ruth. Mike Trout's just better at everything. If you, by the way, if you took. Um, if you took like, uh, I don't know, like Eddie Van Halen with his electric guitar back in time and showed him to Beethoven, that would be, <laughs> that would be intense too, but, but that's, it's two different things. First of all, you'd be by like, the way, there's, by the way, there's a part of that. There's a scene. Okay. Look, and we all know the whole idea of, of some white guy going back to the fifties and then, and then having invented rock and roll before yeah. Chuck Berry is, uh, we all know how insulting that is. However, I will say this for that scene. Remember he starts playing Johnny be good sort of in the mode that Chuck Berry played Like that's how he starts. And then he kind of goes into his own sort of guitar riff and everybody hates it. They all yeah. hate. Like, yeah. Nobody liked new, it. Nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. So the only thing that he was able to do was he was able to cover band Chuck Berry before Chuck Berry came around. And that's fine. And everybody was like, this is amazing stuff because of course it was, it was mind blowing Chuck Berry stuff that none of them had ever heard. But then when he started bringing his own music into it, everybody's like, no, you suck. It is cool that at the last second that movie managed to sneak in a fun little tribute to how white people stole black people's music <laughs> over and over again. That was fun. <laughs> that was like a fun little addition to the uh, to the little okay. uh, time travel romp that we uh, I, experienced. I want to complete the circle here because there is a final point that I want to make about this. So Michael LeBron, Michael ended up winning the poll uh, close closer. The whole idea of this thing was Bill James had done a poll where Michael had gotten like 67% of the vote. And I just thought my followers are not that stupid. Right. So I did this <laughs> and, and my followers went 52% for Michael, which is, you know, close. I mean, that's pretty close to 50, 50. So that's not bad. But the reason I bring all this up is in every circumstance, in every instance, other than one, the old guy, either one or in the case of Jack, um, did very, very well. Like the old guy did very, very well. The only case where the old guy got absolutely destroyed was Tom Brady, Tom Brady over Joe Montana. Tom Brady won 62% of the vote. The biggest blowout of all of these polls was Tom Brady over Joe Montana. Hmm. I think that's interesting. I think, I think one of the things I've always thought about with baseball is that baseball is in love with its history in a way that other sports are not. And I think there's some truth to that, but I think what's even more true is that football fans don't give a rat about history. Just don't yeah. don't care at all. Like if you were five years ago, they don't care. That's it's all football is very very today. Football right? fans are also more obsessed with. I mean, NBA fans are obsessed with with rings, but football fans I think are the most obsessed yeah, with that's rings, right? For right? So like Brady over Montana probably came down to five versus four at some right. dumb level. I will here's here's the last thing I'll say about this, and and this is a little bit of an unfair example, but it makes me laugh. Um, the, <laughs> there's a there's a video that I love watching, which is it was a documentary. I don't know from where it's on YouTube. Uh, it was a documentary about Bill uh, about Bob Cousy, and um, there, there, 
people are talking at one point in the documentary. It's like Red Hour back and it's, you know, this guy and that guy and whatever. And they're all talking about Bob Cousy and how Bob Cousy was the greatest ball handler of all time. And he was doing <laughs> things that nobody had ever seen before and blah, blah, blah. And they show this grainy video of Bob Cousy dribbling. And he's sort of he's sort of dribbling. Um, he's dribbling sort of at the top of the key, not toward the hoop, though, like laterally. And there's a defender guarding him. And Bob Cousy's moving um, about as fast as like I move, I think, when I play <laughs> basketball with my son. And he's dribbling the ball, and the ball is coming up to roughly his armpit when he dribbles. And there's a guy, a dorky white guy who looks like a substitute uh, science teacher at a middle school guarding him. And Bob Cousy like stops running for a second and then starts again. And the guy who's trying to guard him literally just falls down to the floor and like lies on his stomach for a second. And I, I again, like there were probably people who would argue with a straight face that like Bob Cousy was a better point guard than than like Steph Curry or something. And my point is that like again, if you sent Terry Rozier back oh in God. time and you let Terry Rozier play point guard for the 1950s Celtics, they would they would win. They would have won more championships than they even did now. And if, by the way, if you put Terry Rozier on the on the whoever the Milwaukee Bucks back then, if they even existed, they would have beaten the Celtics at in any scenario. So, like, it's a, it's my favorite thing about this is a thing Steve Kerr said when when uh, who whoever it was Barkley or somebody was like chirping about. Oh, it was I think it was um was it no it wasn't Robert Ory. It might have been Scottie Pippen was barking about how yeah. those old Bulls teams would have beaten the current Warriors teams and blah, 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 and hand-checking and those dumb arguments you always hear. And uh, Steve, they asked Steve Kerr about it, and Kerr, with a straight face, was like, yeah, that, I mean, that's the way uh, sports usually works, is the athletes all get a little worse every <laughs> year. Worse <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. I love it so much. And by the way, the Bob Cousy thing, it, it, there's, there's, there, we could do a whole segment just on this fun thing about looking at video. It's hard to make the argument in my view, I mean, you know, and I could be wrong about this, but it's hard to make the argument that Bob Cousy was the greatest ball handler of all time when he didn't dribble with his left hand. Like, don't you think that? Don't you think that's disqualifying? He would like if you had to go left, he would like go in like a backward circle. To yeah, go he the would. Other he, way. <laughs> he turned around and faced his own hoop and then slowly backed up. <laughs> it's also the same argument and look i love jim brown right i grew up on the on the legend of jim brown jim brown is like this amazing thing you but i will say and this is this is not to place jim brown in any context when i don't want to have that argument now but when you watch jim brown they're like oh my god look how many tackles he broke back then and of course you could start talking about how small those guys were whatever but it was much more this he broke tackles of the same guy like six times in the same play. Right. Like he'd be running and then like a linebacker would grab him by the leg and he'd pull away. And then like five yards later, that same linebacker had gotten up and had chased him down and like grabbed him by the waist. And now he pulled him away and, and he would just break the same guy's tackle like five different times. That's not, that, that doesn't happen anymore. It's not really the same thing. Yeah, I was gonna say, no. That's because at that time there was only one defender good enough to even get close <laughs> to him. Well, like the, like every team's ground. middle linebacker was five nine and weighed one hundred and ninety five pounds. So, like again, different, but tough, different... no teeth, tough, just tough. <laughs> I saw North Dallas Forty was on TV a, like a couple weeks ago, and I'd never seen it. And I watched like twenty minutes of it, and the most hilarious thing about it is like Nick Nolte is like a is like the bruiser, right? He's like Nick Nolte is like my is like me. <laughs> He's like six feet tall and weighs like 
185 pounds or something. <laughs> it's like he's like the strong, rugged, uh, you know, he's the Jim Brown of the team. <laughs> All right. So much fun. All right. I do want to say one more time uh, because uh, it's important. Um, Elephant in the Room comes out uh, January 15th, Tuesday, um, and uh, it is absolutely fantastic. Tommy, cannot thank you enough for uh, for joining us. Yes, The Elephant in the Room, uh, available now on pre-order, but uh, also available in stores, uh, I assume nationwide, on January 15th. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's got the yellow cover. Look for the yellow cover. It's fantastic. Mike, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me.